From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. The musical A Strange Loop won this year's Tony Awards for Best Musical and Best Book for a Musical. Today we talk with Michael R. Jackson, who wrote the book and the songs. He's a black, gay musical theater writer who started writing A Strange Loop while working as an usher for the Broadway show The Lion King. His musical is about a black, gay musical theater writer who works as an usher and is writing a musical about an usher. Also, we talk with the head writer of the Marvel TV series, Ms. Marvel, Bisha K. Ali. Ms. Marvel is the first Muslim superhero in the Marvel Universe to star in a comic and in a TV series. And Maureen Corrigan recommends a new novel about class, competition, and the magic of art. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. The show that won this year's Tony Awards for Best Musical and Best Book for a Musical was written and composed by my guest, Michael R. Jackson. One of the cast members became the first trans person to be nominated for a Tony. The show, called A Strange Loop, also won a Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Jackson started writing it when he was working as an usher at the Broadway show The Lion King. He describes his show as a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show. In the play, Usher is writing a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show and is writing a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher. That is one of the strange loops that the title refers to. A Strange Loop is a comedy and drama about self-loathing, feeling stuck, and wanting to change, and about Usher's church-going parents who fear his sexuality will condemn him to eternally burn in hell. Usher's inner feelings are personified by characters called his daily self-loathing, his supervisor of sexual ambivalence, his inner white girl, and others. Jackson says the show isn't autobiographical, but there are definitely parallels to his own life. Let's start with the opening song called Intermission Song. Usher is played by Jaquel Spivey, who was also nominated for a Tony. Till the end of intermission Is that how the show should open? Should there even be a show? No, it should start with what he's thinking Which is just a cursor blinking Cause of all of the directions That the narrative could go To show what it's like To live up here And travel the world In a fat, black, queer body How many minutes Till the end of intermission No one cares about a writer Who is struggling to write Just saying it's way too repetitious And so overly ambitious Which of course makes them suspicious That you think you're This this party has to fight for his right To live in a world That chills up and spits out 
Michael R. Jackson, welcome to Fresh Air. Congratulations on the Tonys and the Pulitzer. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, there are performers who personify Usher's inner voices, his daily self-loathing, the supervisor of his sexual ambivalence, his financial advisor, and his inner white girl. So most of us are familiar with that inner voice of daily self-loathing, although it comes in different flavors. What was your flavor? My flavor was always thinking that I wasn't attractive enough, that I, you know, was awkward, that I didn't fit in to certain groups of people. You know, at different periods of my life, I think I was concerned about whether I was quote-unquote black enough. So it, it sort of manifested in lots of different ways. Well, in terms of questioning whether people perceived you as being black enough, one of Usher's inner voices is his inner white girl. Who is she? The inner white girl is a kind of abstract concept that mostly refers to the singer-songwriter women that Usher really admires artistically, whose work really lives in a really free space where they get to express themselves in a full emotional continuum. And in a way that he feels that he cannot express himself uh, in his work, but also in life. I think part of what Usher admires about them is their ability to express vulnerability, which he feels that he can't in his art or in his life. And I'm wondering if you felt that way, too. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, growing up, there was a lot of music that was being played that did not match my inner life. And I didn't even really realize at that point until it was put in front of me that there were any songwriters who who did sort of sing about their inner lives from a very vulnerable place or from a place of candor or anything. Like everything like I just thought all music was just kind of um straightforward pop music. And I didn't know about singer-songwriters until a certain point. And once I encountered, started encountering them, and in particular Tori Amos, who is like sort of this, one of the most important influences on me as an artist, I suddenly realized, oh, you can actually talk about gnarly feelings in a song. I want to ask you about another one of Usher's inner voices. And this is the inner voice that's checking in to see if he's found his unapologetic blackness yet because his numbers are Mm -hmm. in the toilet with the black excellence crowd and he's close to cancellation. What's that about? Um, That's, you know, this this sort of story that has to do with Usher not feeling like he is in the in-group of blackness and and that he's not sort of hitting his marks as a respectable black person who 
fits in socially and who says all the right things and wears the right clothes and has the right opinions and so on and so forth. Well, advice Usher is given includes you need to make your show about police violence, slavery, and intersectionality because that, that could be really lucrative. Did you feel that way yourself? Um, I mean, all you, I, what I'll say to that, I'm always a little coy about this, is like, just look around. Like, what what stories do you see often getting produced? They are those stories and like the and the language and the and the sort of the rhetoric around what representation is or should be often ends up boiling down to you know a binary of trauma versus joy that's that's an interesting perception and where do you think you fit in on that scale if at all I don't fit on that scale. <laughs> you just reject that scale. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm trying to like, I, the God I worship is nuance and complexity and boundary pushing and, and risk taking and truthfulness. Like, I really am interested in like, is it real? Dude, like, what are the things that people feel but don't say? What, like, what new ground can be covered? Particularly in, you know, black storytelling because so much respectability is about don't say this in front of white people and i'm just like not interested in in that i'm interested in saying what's on my mind or testing out ideas like getting characters to argue about something what are the questions that we're not asking what are the complications that we're not facing what's the truth is there like anything specific you can point to for people who haven't seen the show in a strange loop that you think people think but are unwilling to say? You know, I think the, for example, the sort of argument that is posed about what black artistic work should be and using Tyler Perry's work as a sort of comparison is one thing. Like, in the, there's a song on the show called Tyler Perry Writes Real Life, wherein Usher is asked by his agent to ghostwrite a Tyler Perry-style gospel play. And he says no for a bunch of reasons that have to do with him thinking not highly of Tyler's work. And then he's confronted by the quote-unquote ancestors who admonish him for not sort of seen the the financial possibilities of taking on such a project and but then he sort of counters to them that you know he thinks that his plays are not good for black people but then they counter back that it doesn't matter because the money is too good and i just think that that's like a an argument that you hear all the time that i wanted to dig a little deeper into well, let's hear the song that you just referred to, which is called Tyler Perry Writes Real Life. So um, it starts with the voice of Usher's agent. I know it's been months since we last spoke, and I have no idea if this is of any interest to you or if you have any materials to send. But we just got a call for submissions for something very exciting, especially for you. Oh, yeah? What is it? Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry. Oh no! Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. 
know who? It seems he's gotten so busy with film and TV that his team is looking to farm out the gospel plays to a ghost writer. It'll be a scream. And didn't you once tell me that your mother would love nothing more than for you to write one? So how about it, Ush? Just write a sassy matriarch, a lonely spinstrew loves God. Throw in a few color purple quotes. What do you say? For the opportunity. Of course, of course. But Tyler would be none too fond of me. Now don't sell yourself short. Crafty puts on stage, film, and TV. Makes my buy want to ride. I know. You're exactly. Nothing that he writes seems real to <laughs> yes, me. Yes, you think he's that. The simple mighty buffoonery. But no white theaters will let you. And if I tried to match his coonery, he'd see my disguise. Just think about it. I'm still emerging, looking to make my start, but not so hungry that I'd ride the chitlin circuit. I'm into entertainment that's undercover art. My mission is to figure out just how to work it today. So that was the song Tyler Perry Writes Real Life from the Broadway cast recording of A Strange Loop, which was written by my guest Michael R. Jackson, who also wrote the music and lyrics for the show. Um, so that song's very, you know, humorously critical of Tyler Perry's work with a formula of a sassy matriarch, a lonely spinster who loves God, and a few quotes from The Color Purple. Um, did you grow up with his work? Did your parents love his work? Like, what's your connection? What's your personal connection to Tyler Perry movies and or shows? I did not grow up with his work. I wasn't I wasn't made aware of them until I got to college. And a, a, my best friend, Kisha, sort of was like, have you heard about this guy? And as a sort of gag gift for her birthday that year, I bought me and her tickets to see his play, Why Did I Get Married? That was playing in New York City at the Beacon Theater. And we went to it, and we both were just like really struck by the fact that it was like a packed house. It was like a pretty much an all-black audience, which I don't think either of us had really seen before. And it was funny because like we were like playwriting students at NYU at this time, and obviously like you know minority students in a predominantly white institution. And so, but both of us from black cities, so we it wasn't like it was foreign to us of being in black spaces, but seeing this particular kind of work, which in a lot of ways reminded us of back home of watching like, you know, black history programs that we would do at church or Christmas programs or Easter programs. It, like it had that feeling. And so I became, that sort of began my curiosity about his work, especially as it then began to blow up into TV and film. And so I would watch the movies and I would see some of the TV shows and I would also continue to watch some of the stage plays that would be recorded for DVD. And I then would like line out that like my mother was like a huge fan of his work and I would, and other people, you know, around me were as well. And something that they would sometimes say was that they liked his work because it was like real life. And I just found that to be a really baffling assessment of what I was seeing because I was like, I know what it reminds me of back home, but real life is not what I thought of it. And the more I sort of sat with that idea, the more that Tyler sort of became my white whale. 
<laughs> that I was chasing. <laughs> and, and then especially when I saw, and this is well into me working on Drats of the Strange Loop, when I saw the 2013 film uh, Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, wherein two women are stricken with HIV AIDS sort of as punishment for their having sex with this bad man who was like a devil man. And I just was so blown away by that and how like there's all this like this weird religious moralism in, in his work and in the theater where I watched Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, this woman, once one of the characters is, is announced to have gotten HIV from another character, she goes, that's what she gets. When that reminded me of back home. That, like, that, was, that was my real life of like people sort of saying, you know, really negative things about sexuality. And it wasn't in, in a gay context, but it all felt of one piece to me. And so I, I sort of began really in earnest dealing with the satire of what Tyler's work represents and what it can lead to. My guest is Michael R. Jackson. He wrote the book and the songs for the Broadway musical A Strange Loop, which won this year's Tonys for Best Musical and Best Book for a Musical. We'll hear more of the conversation after a break. And Maureen Corrigan will recommend a new novel about class, competition, and the magic of art. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Zoom. Half a million businesses connect using Zoom, a single platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video. Zoom enables real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom's secure and reliable platform is easy to manage, use, and customize for large enterprises, small businesses, and individuals alike. Zoom, how the world connects. Let's get back to my interview with Michael R. Jackson. His musical, A Strange Loop, won this year's Tonys for Best Musical and Best Book for a Musical. It also won a Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Jackson describes it as a musical about a young, black, gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show. In the play, Usher is writing a musical about a young, black, gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show and is writing a musical about a young, black, gay musical theater writer named Usher. Jackson was working as an usher at the Broadway show The Lion King when he started writing A Strange Loop. How were you introduced to Broadway shows? You grew up in Detroit, far away from Broadway. I don't know how many shows you got to see when you were coming of age. I was introduced to Broadway probably really when I came to college at NYU, but I was aware of a lot of Broadway shows before that. Um, but I didn't grow up watching the Tonys or anything like that. Um, but I did grow up, like, like uh, I, I saw West Side Story, the movie, at an early age, and I saw, like, Little Shop of Horrors, like, the movie. I think that was my main way of absorbing Broadway, was the movie versions. Although, sometimes tours would come through Detroit, and my mother would take me to see them, and that was, like, our little thing that we did together. So I remember we went to Toronto when I was 12 or 13, and we saw the 94 revival of Showboat. Oh, and that was great. I was blown away by it. Yeah. Like it, to this day, it is, like, one of my favorite 
scores. And I just thought it was like a devastatingly beautiful show. And I loved the songs. And and I think it planted a seed in me, even though I wasn't thinking about being a musical theater writer at that time, that musicals could be complex and epic and and could really sort of do a lot. That they weren't just like, you know, jazz hands. Yeah, right. So, so I want to get to another theme in A Strange Loop, which is that the main character, Usher, uh, thinks of himself as fat and therefore unlovable and unable to have, you know, a, a loving relationship or, you know, even any kind of sexual relationship. And I'm, I'm wondering if that, those feelings come from your life at all. Um, so I definitely came of age, I came out, into what I always call the black gay teenage storyline of my life. There were lots of black gay teenage boys around me. They were sexually active. They were in relationship with each other. It was high drama. It was like all of that. And I was somewhat on the outside of that, uh, even then among like my peer group. And so then when I came to New York, where I had been told that I was going to have, like, the time of my life as a gay man and that I was going to have all this sex and that um, it was going to be just, like, a grand old party. I What I learned is that I was at the bottom of the food chain <laughs> as far <laughs> as, as that goes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, it was a very white-run kind of social scene. As much as I knew at that time. This is, like, we're talking the late 90s, early 2000s. And I had to really orient myself to what it meant to be a gay man in New York City at that time as somebody who was short and fat and um, did not have any of the, the sort of physical attributes that would make one sort of uh, popular in, you know, gay male sexual scene as I understood it, or as I knew how to be. Something that I've been thinking about recently is that I did not have any gay elders. And so there was no one to tell me what to do or where to go or how to do anything. And so every sort of experience that I had as a gay man in New York was by me making mistake after mistake after mistake, or like, or just fumbling around kind of in the dark trying to figure out how to be, how to fit in. And that, you know, was very hard for me. And it did lead to quite a lot of negative self-talk because the the messages that I was sort of getting from without was that I was not attractive enough, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't, you know, hot enough, that I wasn't all of that. Like, it was just, it was all kind of um, just a, an exile in Gayville, which is how that song in A Strange Loop came to be. How does it feel now to be in demand? Um, It feels busy. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like I'm never home, like ever. Well, I hope it's a good feeling, whatever being busy. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's good. It's, you know, I spent so many years like working terrible day jobs and like wanting to like jump out of the window (laughs) because I hated whatever I was doing at the moment, that certainly I I am enjoying, you know, being able to share my work with the world and getting people to listen to me and, and also getting to 
you know, try to be as clear about my ideas as possible. You know, one reason why I even started working on the show was that I felt unseen, unheard, and misunderstood. And as somebody who's, who's, you know, trade is literally in language, I'm always interested in trying to make sure that I say what I mean and that I mean what I say. Michael R. Jackson, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations on the Tonys and the Pulitzer and the success that A Strange Loop is having. Thank you. Michael R. Jackson wrote the book and the songs for the Broadway musical A Strange Loop. You can hear the music from the show on the new cast recording. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, recommends a new novel she describes as a wry and vivid story about class, competition, and the magic of art. It's called The Poet's House, and it's by Jean Thompson, who's written 14 works of fiction, including the New York Times bestseller, The Year We Left Home. Here's Maureen's review of The Poet's House. There are books that I review and love and can't wait to put into the hands of friends who I think will love them, too. And then there's a subset of books I love that will never leave this house because I want them nearby to dip into, reread, feel comforted by. That sounds sentimental, I know. The Poet's House by Jean Thompson is the newest addition to that subset of books that's staying put. It's a closely observed, droll, coming-of-age story about an insecure young woman drawn into a shimmering clique of poets. It's also a wise story about the corrosive power of shame, the primal fear of sounding stupid, unsophisticated, sentimental. Thompson's heroine is a 21-year-old woman named Carla Sawyer, Carla has taken a few courses at her local junior college in Northern California, but as she says, she has one of those brains that doesn't process words on a page very well. So she's working for a landscaper. It wasn't my dream job, she tells us, though I couldn't have said what was. Carla's mother and her live-in boyfriend both think she's selling herself short. So does Carla, sort of. From time to time, she says, I was overcome by a sadness or strangeness, a feeling of too much feeling, if that makes sense, of standing just outside of something desirable and urgent and important. And then I had to get a grip. One day, Carla gets an assignment to tidy up the grounds of a sprawling house that sits on the edge of a canyon. It belongs to a Mrs. Boone, who's really a well-known older poet called Viridian. Here's Carla's first glimpse of Viridian. She had long gray and silver hair brushed straight back from her forehead and standing out like a lion's mane. She wore loose white linen pants and a blue knee-length top with wide drooping sleeves, I saw older women wearing clothes like these in Marin, equal parts yoga practice and Star Wars costuming. Of course, Viridian is charismatic, even more so because, as Carla notes, she guarded herself from any easy intimacy. 
After she loses her job with the landscaper, Carla begins showing up at Viridian's house in the late afternoon to tend to the flower beds gratis and to sit afterwards with Viridian and the other poets and writers who drop in. I didn't talk much, just listened, Carla says, soaking everything up. I wanted the clothes they wore, the lives they'd lived. I guess you could say I had a poetry crush. Viridian reads her poems out loud to Carla, one-on-one, and Carla gets poetry for the first time. As she hesitantly ventures more deeply into Viridian's world, for instance, doing part-time work for a prestigious poetry magazine, Carla drifts apart from her boyfriend, and he angrily suggests that Carla is just some passing project for Viridian and her pals. Thompson is such a nuanced writer that she avoids either-or categories. Like most people, the larger-than-life Viridian is a lot of things at once, a prima donna for sure, and a bit of a manipulator, but also a sincere mentor. Writing through Carla's perspective gives the alert Thompson an opportunity to nail the social class microaggressions and misunderstandings that pop up again and again in conversations with Viridian's coterie, who literally speak a different language. When, for instance, the editor of that poetry magazine first approaches Carla about working there, he says... I wonder if you'd like to be on hand when we put together the next issue of the magazine. I wasn't sure what he meant, Carla tells us. Be on hand? Help out. Make phone calls. Keep track of author queries. Pick up the lunch order. It takes a few more rounds of this elegant stumble mumbling before Carla understands that this job is unpaid. The plot of The Poet's House climaxes at a remote writer's conference, always excellent fodder for satire, and concerns a hidden cache of valuable poems that Viridian has inherited from a former famous lover. Viridian refuses to publish them, and Carla must outmaneuver the various factions who want to use her to pressure Viridian. As absorbing as that plot is, however, it's Thompson's charged depiction of Carla's unfocused yearning to be more that powers this story and makes it so emotionally resonant. The Poet's House, as I said, is a keeper. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Poet's House by Jean Thompson. Coming up... Bisha K. Ali, the head writer of the Disney Plus series Ms. Marvel, the first show or movie in the Marvel Universe to star a Muslim hero. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. The Marvel Universe's first Muslim superhero to have her own comic book and TV series was brought to the screen by our guest Bisha K. Ali. The miniseries Ms. Marvel stars Iman Valani as the teenager Kamala Khan, who discovers she has superpowers. It concluded last Wednesday on Disney+, Plus, but all the episodes are streaming. Bishop Ali spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger, who will tell you more. Kamala Khan is a teenage girl living in Jersey City. 
juggling the sometimes conflicting demands of high school, social life, and her family. Her Pakistani-born parents, especially her mom, Muniba, are worried that she's growing up too quickly. Kamala is an artist, a daydreamer, and a fan of superheroes. She's especially enamored of Captain Marvel. She even goes to a convention dressed as Captain Marvel, where she discovers she herself has superpowers. How she gets those superpowers is too much to explain here, but they are part of her family history, a history fractured by the traumatic creation of Pakistan during partition in 1947. Bisha Kaeli is the head writer of Ms. Marvel. She's from England, but her parents, like Kamala Khan's, came from Pakistan. Before Ms. Marvel, she wrote for another Marvel show, Loki, as well as for Mindy Kaling's TV miniseries, which was a reboot of Four Weddings and a Funeral, and the Netflix show Sex Education. Ali's also worked as a stand-up comedian and often co-hosted the comedic podcast The Guilty Feminist. Let's start with a clip from Ms. Marvel's first episode. Here, Kamala's talking with her friend Bruno, played by Matt Lintz. Her parents don't want her to go to AvengerCon, the convention I mentioned above. She's not doing well in school, and she's feeling pretty down. Yeah, but maybe they're right. Maybe I spend too much time with fan art and costumes and with my head stuck in fantasy land, so. Who's they? My mom, my teachers, Mr. Wilson, everyone. You know, there was a girl in our neighborhood who decided she wanted to go backpacking around Europe, and you would, you would literally think she's joined a death cult given the way all the aunties just gossip about her. I'm lost. What does that have to do with AvengerCon? Dressing up as Captain Marvel's weird. No, it's not. And it's childish, and I know that, okay? And, and let's be honest, it's not really the brown girls from Jersey City who save the world. Sure they do. You're Kamala Khan. You want to save the world, then you're going to save the world. That's a scene from Ms. Marvel. Our guest today is the head writer of the show, Bisha Kaeli. Bisha, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. If we're going to put aside the superhero stuff for a second, the show seems to really be about a, a teenage girl trying to find her place in the world. Were you at all concerned that okay, we don't want to make this about she's rejecting like the cultural tradition she comes from, but that there's a balance there between accepting like her high school friends and accepting what her parents want. A hundred percent. She's fully engaged in her community. She's mm-hmm. fully engaged in going to uh, the dance practices and going to doing a big dance at her brother's very, very South Asian, specifically Pakistani wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, you see her fully engaged in going to the mosque and taking part in a religious prayer there and being part of that community, going to those Eid celebrations. So there's no, there's no note of these people, this culture oppresses me and I'm in direct conflict with them. Um, that really isn't at all what we were chasing. It's more individual than that. It's how do I figure out where, who I am in this space and carry these people with me in a way that also allows me to make myself an individual, make myself feel fully in my own power. So there's a lot of kind of weighing up how all that would play out, mm-hmm. but we're never ever driven by the idea that I want to reject all of this. No, she loves all of this. She wants to be part of saving all of this. And that was really important to us. I mean, the scenes with their family are just wonderful to watch. Um, and what I really like about the show is that the superpowers are really just like another thing she has to deal with. Like she's she's got school, mm-hmm. she's got her family, she's trying to learn to drive. Maybe there's some romantic issues coming. And then she's also got this like cosmic energy that shoots from her hands. Like it's uh-huh. just another thing. And at one point she's in school She's 
not really in control of her powers at this point. And at the end of class, like her powers show up on her nose. It's almost like a big zit appears on her nose. And (laughs) she rushes to the bathroom trying to get it together because she's hiding this. And her friend misunderstands what's going on and, and hands her a tampon like over the stall. Like that's that's a really funny scene. It's, it uses those powers as a metaphor for like all the complications of, of growing up in adulthood. That's exactly it. It was really important. That's something that existed in the comics um, in a big way that felt really important to me and why I was so drawn to the material anyway, um, was that her powers and what happens to her and the, the superhero element of this really reflects on where where she is psychologically, where she is in her maturity, where she is as a teenager, and what's the worst case scenario in all of the scenarios. And it's being, as you say, it's having a zit on your face. And it's, but it, there's a big cosmic zit. Your nose is expanded and is looking very cosmic. When you were writing the show, did you have an ideal viewer in mind in your head? Oh, gosh. Um, certainly at the beginning, we wanted to capture a broad audience. But we also, on a very personal level, we're writing for people like us. We're writing for people who rarely get to see themselves be the protagonists, who have suffered from a history of poor uh, media representation in the West for decades that has negatively affected our lives. So yes, there was a kind of a general broader audience, um, but there's also a very specific niche audience too that we're speaking to. And that there are some elements in this show where if you don't know, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's us speaking to them. And it's really a love letter to all of those people, to fans and to young women especially. But there's also a certain subsection within that that's there's stuff there that people from a Muslim background are really going to pick up on. There's stuff there that people from a South Asian background will really pick up on. And then even more grand specifically a Pakistani background will pick up on and even more granular than that specifically a Sindhi Pakistani family so there's so much specificity in there there's something for everybody so that was our intention to speak to everybody but also have kind of coded love letters to all different types of groups within that well I think what's interesting is you said there's all these layers of inside jokes for people who've grown up South Asian or Muslim in, in different communities and so those are inside jokes and that but then sometimes you take the time to explain something to a larger audience, which I think sounds like one of those moments where you're thinking deeply about how will this be understood by other people. And I thought an interesting scene of that is between uh, Kamala and her friend Nakia in the bathroom when they're talking about why Nakia wears a headscarf. So I, I just wanted to play this scene because I thought it was interesting that we could talk about it afterwards. Um, and Nakia is played by Yasmin Fletcher. So let's hear it. Everything's just changing really fast, Nax. You feel like you can't keep up? I know it's dumb, but... Are you kidding? Between the hijab and the girlies, my parents can barely make eye contact with me anymore. How are you making it look so easy? Easy? It's definitely not easy. My whole life, I've either been too white for some people or too ethnic for others. And it's been this very uncomfortable, sucky in between. So when I first put this on, I was hoping to shut some people up. But I kind of realized I don't really need to prove anything to anybody. Like when I put this on, I feel like me. Like I have a purpose. It's probably why I ran for the mosque board. And. Remember, you're the one who convinced me to do it in the first place. I love you. I love you too. So, Bisha, that that seems like a scene that's doing some work. 
<laughs> yeah, it is indeed. It's doing push-ups. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think when we see characters with hijab, historically it's usually portrayed as a tool of oppression, right? And that it's not someone's choice or that it's something that narratively at some point they're going to take off their hijab and now they've self-actualized and now I know how to assimilate and I can be free and live my own life. And I'm... You imagine I actually, like wind I, blowing through someone's hair or something like that. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. Um, and look, I've said that quite flippantly and for effect in this interview, but in reality, there is a narrative like that that exists for someone out there. That's, I don't mm. want to diminish that, actually. That's somebody's truth and, you know, good luck to them. But it is the dominant narrative that we've seen when it comes to hijab. And I think it, when we talk about representation, I think I'm very mindful that one thing can't represent every single billion plus Muslim experience, mm -hmm. not at all. We can represent one story that's true to the characters in our show, and that has to be more than enough. And this, for us, what felt really important was that this was a choice for her. She feels empowered by putting it on. There's something that her parents actively, in fact, were confused by her doing. And this is something that she really felt like, this makes me who I am, and I want this for myself. For young girls who have chosen for themselves to wear hijab, for them to see someone like them, so they don't have to go and explain themselves at school all the time or with their friends or their peers are like, why, why, what's up with this? Who's forcing you to do it? This is just one example where they can kind of see themselves in Nakia, that Yes, that's how I feel about it. And that felt so important to us. And there's been such a positive response to women who wear hijab feeling like that when they saw that scene. So, Bishop, looming in the background of the show is partition. Uh, when British colonial rule of India ended in 1947 and the independent self-governing countries of India and Pakistan were created, um, there are estimates that partition displaced 15 million people. And I've seen estimates that up to 2 million people died in, in violent conflicts. Um, one of your characters says that every Pakistan family has a partition story. And your characters have a traumatic one. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you decided to make partition central to the story. Absolutely. Um, partition had such a huge impact. Those numbers you just stated are so high. And... It's something that we don't really talk about. We don't really talk about it even in our own homes that much, in the homes of the people who are directly affected by it. And yet you can see in our character's journey and in the journey of the fourth generation of women that we see in this story, um, the ripple effect of the violence of that time and how it affected each of those mothers' relationships with their daughters all the way down to our protagonist, Kamala Khan. And when I think about my experience with that, my own family's experience with what happened during partition. I think about stories that are snippets of things and often those snippets of stories are coming to you in times of, at times of bereavement, when someone passes away, suddenly there's like an opening, this door just starts getting cracked open and the trauma of what happened, you're starting to hear pieces of it. And they're these huge, huge stories that are about the core of who you are and you want to look at it from a place of, using in our story not to be um, this is trauma porn and look at this horrible thing that happened, but really coming from a place of how can we use this this witnessing, this bearing witness to what our own families have been through and to what our own parents have been through and to the humanity of our own parents and our own families. What can that bearing witness do to help us heal? And that was really that journey for Kamala. And if I'm kind of being really honest about this process, it was certainly the journey for a lot of us in the room in terms of bearing witness to what people we know and love have been through and what that means on a wider scale when we put that out into the world. 
This might be too personal to share, but is there anything about your your family story that you'd be willing to tell us? There's one that stuck out to me that I knew from beforehand, and that was my mother's grandmother, and that during partition, one thing that happened was, I mean, we don't depict this on the television show because it, partition was far more violent than I have the capacity to depict mm-hmm. and far more complex. So that's why we focus so much on individual family story. But one of the elements that we kind of are um, tipping our hat towards is the fact that um, children would often be lost completely. Um, their parents were murdered right beside them or they um, simply got lost in the crush of people trying to leave at real time because, as you said, millions of people moving. And it was such a short period of time. It was just very, very, like a, less than a month when this actual tra- movement was taking place, the majority of it. So um, the children getting lost from their families was uh, something we were really thinking about a lot in the writing of it. And part of it for me personally was that my mother's grandmother had been handed these six children and said that they're, we can't find their parents, they've lost their parents entirely, they've come off the train, and some of them have come off a train where their parents are dead on those trains, and the mm. kids have survived because of the actions of their parents, mm. and then the children are here. And she ended up raising six of those children who mm. had no sense of who they were before, they don't know anything about their history before that date, before getting off those trains. They're traumatized by what they've just experienced. Um, and so that was a story that always stuck with me, that there were these this a family of six children who are, who I don't know I haven't kind of I'm not connected them in a deep way but my great great my great grandmother just raised them because they were handed over to her and thought what a responsibility for her to feel that someone needs to care for these children what a moment for these children that have all lost any semblance of what a family is before that moment. So uh, you you study economics at university but. At some point, you went on to become a stand-up comedian. How did you make that switch? Um, very painfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, I think I was always trying to prove something to someone um, in terms of academic achievement. I was always I got pretty good grades, and it was always a given in terms of my family environment that you're going to go to university and then succeed and get a safe job and we're all going to live happily ever after and you're not going to have to worry about money the way that we had to and as I went on I felt like I was proving everything that I wanted to prove and I sure great I've done this and I'm really proud of it and I'm so lucky to be in this situation but I just had this feeling of just discomfort of I don't feel happy (laughs) I don't know I mean I don't know that I've 100% got it right now but I just don't feel happy in what I'm spending my days doing but that desire of being able to tell stories and share stories with people um, was always there I never went away from when I was a kid all the way up to studying economics and then going on to, I was working at The Economist very briefly and all kinds of other jobs. And I just could not imagine doing this for the rest of my life. And so I just decided I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and tell stories in my own way. And stand-up was really my, my, my kind of door into that. You know, there's a, there's a point in your show where Kamala reveals to her parents that she has superpowers. Was there a point where you had to reveal to your parents that you were actually a stand-up comedian? Oh my gosh, yes, there was. Let's not relive it. Um, <laughs> I think um, my parents were really supportive of me being a storyteller in some capacity. Um, they love the idea of me being a writer, especially. I think the idea of stand-up to them was a world of bars and mm-hmm. clubs and spaces that you don't actually see very many, especially at that time, any women in, let alone women who look like me and who are my my age. I was quite young when I started in relative terms. Um, So the world is really, uh, looks unsafe 
to them. And they're not wrong, <laughs> having then done it for eight years. They're not completely wrong in their fears. Um, um, so it was, I think it was hard for them to understand, A, the desire, mm-hmm. why on earth would you want to do this? And B, in terms of the strictness, it was so far removed from their experience of me, from what I kind of was able to share with them growing up, of who I, parts of who I am. So um, I think that was really difficult for my dad especially. Um, but again, they don't have the exposure to, whether it's in media, and in publishing or TV or film, they don't really know, and neither did I. Well, how do you even get into any of this? Right. What does that even look like that your job is to write? To write, What does that look like? How is that going to support you? Um, so I think that was a really that was really hard for them because of, I think that was driven by kind of love and from fear of the unknown. But they've come around now. They're all right. Well, Bishop Kaley, thanks so much for being on Fresh Air. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Bishop Kaley is the head writer for the Disney Plus superhero series, Ms. Marvel. She spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. Fresh Air Weekend was produced this week by Heidi Simon and Seth Kelly. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Teresa Madden, Henry Bodonato, Thea Chaloner, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.